0: Welcome to Progressive News Network. I'm your host, Brooke Hines. It is Sunday, August 16, 2020. And we've got a great show for you tonight. Uh, you need to know this. Florida's primary is Tuesday, which is the 18th. If you haven't sent your ballot back, just drop it off at a... Uh, at a um, Drop site you can find those at your Supervisor of election website Real easy you just walk up to the box And you drop it in we did that today At an early voting site um, <clears throat> Not a lot Going on on the ballot this time On my ballot just a bunch of judges And this and that uh, But for the rest of you guys there is a lot Of really cool uh, Races in in Florida and beyond but Tuesday is our primary um, and this is our local primaries. Florida, unlike other states, ha- uh, separates the presidential primary from the um, from other primaries going on for local and state um, offices. But okay, got that out of the way. Vote; it's important, and and don't mail it at this point if you have your ballot in your hand, do not mail it back. Um, But anyway, continuing on tonight, uh, we've got Rick Spizak chatting with Matthew Schwartz of South Florida Wildlands on development and water issues in Florida. And we've also got Janine Maloff sharing what she's learned on the Supreme Court's uh, shadow docket. And uh, that reminds me. Last week we had a big technical glitch, so we've instituted a whole bunch of new production uh, uh, processes. And I just got a chat message from a listener who says it sounds good. So I am quite relieved. Listener, thank you very much for that feedback because um, we just had a really weird glitch last night or last week, and none of my None of the stuff from my microphone was recorded or went out over the air. So that was a problem with direct connect with uh blog talk radio. Um, but I have figured out a way to bypass that. So um, we won't be having that issue ever again. Yay. Okay. So we've got so much that happened this week. Um, don't forget to check in with uh, the COVID report, which went up on Friday, I think, and also the Environmental Justice Report. That's Janine Maloff's environmental program. Uh, she's writing a book, and this is the companion to that. And She broadcasts every Thursday at 8 p.m. Uh, Eastern time, 7 p.m. her time, which is central. And uh both shows are are really good. I'm trying to keep the COVID material off of the Sunday show because it can just go on very long and just dominate what we do. So, and also if we broadcast in the middle of the week, then we can catch the numbers, the midweek numbers, and also the midweek news, which is very important in tracking COVID and so on. Um, all right. I've got a bunch. I have so many good stories to share with you this week. You know, there's so much going on. Uh, we've got the, the, the business going on in the, in the post office. We've got this, uh, um, Massachusetts primary that's gone all sideways. We've got, um, Trump talking about Edwards pardoning Edward Snowden, which is just weird and out of nowhere and more UFO stuff. Okay. Let's see if we can get to all of it. And, uh, this is uh, this will be the weekly beat report and uh, we'll be right back with that. I'm going to start you out with the post office material that we have for this week. Uh, Wow. Wow. If you're on Twitter and you've been following this story, you were just uh, bombarded with all kinds of crazy stupidity this week, mostly coming from, well, you know, places where you would expect crazy stupidity to come from like uh, Marcos of daily co's and uh, uh, Jason Johnson whatever his name is Dr. Jason Johnson uh, you know of the uh, misfit black girl um, fame he's back on MSNBC and he's spending his time surprise surprise he's spending his time finding ways to attack Bernie Sanders on a completely unrelated issue but gives us a chance to talk about Bernie Sanders in the post office here we go. Probably um, aware that the United States Post Office uh, has been removing sorting machines and post office, uh, those post bins that are in neighborhoods or at shopping centers. Uh, they proposed removing 20% of letter sorting machines it uses around the country before revising a plan uh, a few weeks later to just 15% of the machines, meaning 502 machines uh, are have been or are or are going to be taken out of service this is according to documents obtained by motherboard outlining the agency's plans united states postal service workers told motherboard this will slow the ability to sort mail well this is uh this seems to be the uh the goal here uh that that trump is trying to hobble the post office, in order to steal the election, right? Um, one of the documents also suggests these changes were in the works before Louis DeJoy, a top Trump donor and Republican fundraiser, became postmaster general because it is dated May 15, a month before DeJoy assumed office and only nine days after the Board of Governors announced his selection. So <clears throat> let that sink in. This isn't. This is. This is something that had been in the works for quite some time. Uh, so motherboard got a hold of, uh, of a presentation that was being used in this whole decommissioning scenario, and <clears throat> it uh, showed that. Just directly that the uh, that the memo called the initiative an equipment reduction. It makes no mention of the machines being moved to other facilities, uh, and the notice to union officials repeatedly used the same phrase, equi- equipment reduction. Multiple sources within the Postal Service told Motherboard they have personally witnessed the machines, which cost millions of dollars, being destroyed were thrown in the dumpster and uh, USPS did not respond to a request for comment. In May, the USPS planned to remove a total of 969 sorting machines out of the 4,926 it had in operation as of February for all types of letters and mails. Now, these are those bark barcode sorters. So this is the stuff that um, makes it so that uh, uh, bulk mail, uh, direct mail, postcards, and, and all that sort of thing can go through, through the system really, really quick. And so you remove those machines, and it means there's more handwork involved in Sorting through the mail and getting it To where it needs to go and what that Has done is caused these huge Delays so like there's plenty Of places in the country where There aren't pharmacies Anymore and so people Have relied on the United States Postal Service as a means To get their Prescription medicines by mail And there are people who Are now experiencing You know they expected for their medicines To show up uh, because you're only allowed to order them as they're, you know, coming coming due. And people are having two weeks and three weeks of delay in between the last time they had their medicine and the next time they have their medicine. You know, this, is, this uh, quite literally is deadly for you know, people who have, uh, you know, critical issues that if they don't get their medicines, they like certain cancer treatments. If they don't get them, uh people could freaking die, you know. Um and I'm sure everyone's everyone's aware that this isn't, you know, this isn't like uh you know Trump gives a damn about people at all. Uh but continuing on, the uh the timeline of the May document that Motherboard is reporting on here, and that I'm kind of basing this this whole thing on, uh, the timeline of the May document did not come to pass. It proposed a plan resulting in the machines being removed by the end of July, but that didn't happen. Interviews with six postal workers and union officials around the country spoke to Motherboard on the condition of anonymity, um, revealed that these machine removals are still occurring in Michigan, West Virginia, Massachusetts, Maryland, and Texas. And I have a I have a graphic that I'm looking at right now that is a graphic of the United States. This is from the Washington Post. Uh, and we've got postal service reduction and sorting capacity in pieces of mail per hour. So the reduction of pieces of mail per hour Los Angeles is 577,000 pieces of mail reduced per hour in Houston, 470,000 pieces of mail per hour in Pontiac, Michigan, 394,000 pieces of mail per hour. Okay. In Florida, by the way, We've got reductions in the in the realm of two hundred to three hundred thousand per hour in Jacksonville, Orlando, Tampa Bay area, Sarasota, and Miami. Then there are smaller reductions in Gainesville, Saint Petersburg, Sarasota, um, Tallahassee, And uh, further up in the panhandle. So, you know, pretty much Florida is covered. uh, The big um, battleground states or what is expected to be big big battleground states in the presidential election. Uh, You've got Texas in play and you've got um, Michigan in play. Uh, So, of course, those are going down. But The other angle to this is that the guy who is been put in place by the Trump administration had formerly worked on the um, on a Republican uh, political action committee for Senate seats. So what you need to keep in in mind is that they've likely got a a Senate senatorial strategy here, where uh, the reason why West Virginia is on the map, so to speak. Is because they're trying to impact the Senate election in West Virginia. You've also got big reductions in Columbus, Ohio, in New York, and in Philadelphia. So Pennsylvania, another big um, battleground state for the uh, for the presidential election. Uh, so it just keeps getting worse and worse. More machine removals are planned for the months ahead. The document sent to union officials in June shows an updated plan to extend the machine removal timeline through the first quarter of 2021 So I mean like this is this is just blatantly dismantling one of the fundamental uh, bedrocks of American. Infrastructure Motherboard also viewed documents From the same region that laid out Detailed plans to remote To reroute mail To sorting facilities further away In order to centralize Mail processing even if it Moves the mail across Further distances To the union officials the result of these Plans was clear this will slow mail Processing one wrote in Super large font It says, um, so all of this is, all of this is a, 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 as West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin has said, the Trump administration is launching an all out war on the US Postal Service, um, he goes on to say, several weeks ago, we learned they had unexpectedly announced closures of several West Virginia post offices. Then we learned of their plans to change the regulations surrounding the first class mail and election mail. Now we're hearing reports that the post office is removing sorting machines and reducing capacities a few months before an election where we'll see more mail-in ballots than ever before. This is insane, says um, <clears throat> represent or Senate Senator Joe Manchin. Now I've got I've got a little clip here. Let's see. I had a clip I want to share with you. This is uh, this is a clip that that Bernie Sanders put out earlier today. Trump is refusing to fund the postal service
1: million dollars for the post office. If we don't make a deal, that means they don't get the money. That means they can't have universal mail-in voting.
2: Anybody who is intentionally trying to keep people from voting, because
1: that candidate knows that those people will vote against him or her, that person is a
2: political coward. His administration is making cuts to the postal service, which would cause problems for mail-in voting. Well, the new postmaster general put in some policies That
1: we don't think can do anything but slow down mail. And so far.
0: I want to tell you that this person speaking right here is Mark Diamondstein, the American Postal Workers Union president. And, uh, you know, of course, he's he's uh, going to be somebody who is speaking out on this. That's what the results have been. Postal Service removes some mail short- sorting machines, sparking President's concerns. President to claim that mail-in
3: voting leads to widespread fraud and rigged elections without presenting any evidence.
4: It'll be the greatest rigged election in history. If you do universal mail-ins with millions and millions of ballots, you're never going to know what the real result of
0: an election is. 76% of Americans can vote by mail due to the pandemic this year.
4: But the mail capacity
0: has been reduced by 21 President million. Of the United
1: States basically said that he's willing to hold the post office hostage that needs COVID
2: appropriated relief due to this economic crisis in order to keep people from voting. I've called for the resignation of the new postmaster general, who, in his own way, through regulations, is trying to sabotage the postal service. If there is a decent sized turnout in this election, Trump loses. And I think Trump understands that. That's one.
0: And that's the key here. You know, this is all about turnout. The, the uh, elections in this country have to do with you know, if, if people turn out and vote, then uh, generally uh, Democrats win on in in pretty fairly normal cycles. And of course, uh, if Trump doesn't know that, there are people around him who, who do know that. Now, this. Story got really interesting because a couple of uh, a couple of people who I I'd, I'd put under the uh, Barack Obama the you know Obama Stan uh, uh, label came out and tried to blame Bernie Sanders for what Trump is doing. So you've got um, Marcos of Daily Kos and you got uh, Jason Johnson uh teaming up to v- completely disingenuously try and you know say that this this somehow had something to do with uh, Bernie Sanders because way 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 back in i want to say it was twenty fourteen Bernie Sanders opposed a um Bernie Sanders opposed an an appointment. To the Postal Service, and so let's let's revisit this. David Dayan wrote about it in 2014, and so he's shared this article out. Um, it says Obama is partly to blame for the Postal Service's backward ways. Now this was written in 2014. Now back in 2014, what was going on was people were talking about uh, U.S. Postal Service doing some banking. Uh, functions. So like uh, uh, issuing debit cards and the kind of stuff that would kind of go along with the, uh, the the mail service already does money orders. So it'd be, you know, things like that, real light kinds of, of banking that would make sense for um, members of the community. Wouldn't be like a commercial bank. Um, so it would give people, especially people in in places where there just isn't you know, much banking service, you know, poor people would have access to banking service instead of having to go to like a check cashing kind of place that charges interest rates that are, you know, uh, laughable, but if they weren't true, you know, like 600% freaking interest. Um, so back in 2014, Bernie Sanders was was pushing this idea and, and Elizabeth Warren got behind it and uh, endorsed the idea as a way to aid the post office's search for new revenue, you know, because it's like you know they keep wanting to run things like a business even though it's a public service um and you know has never should never be expected to make money that is not what the postal service does and it shouldn't be what um hospitals and uh, uh, healthcare providers do, but, you know, so here, here we are. Um, and uh, at the time there was a, there was a lot broken in the postal service administration. Uh, the inspector G- general uh Put out a report on the postal, on the banking situation that the USPS, because of its current role providing money orders and other non bank financial services could explore additional options within its existing authority. Um, That means that the postmaster general since 2010, whose name is Patrick Donahoe and his leadership team could conduct pilot programs and gradually roll out these new services nationwide. Yet agency officials at the time only said that they are reviewing the recommendations. Now Donahoe um, said that he sees his mission as a as a digging the postal service out of a quote giant financial hole unquote so he didn't come in you know with any kind of you know this this was a you know someone under Obama who you know takes the same view as these Republican uh, appointees that this isn't a public service that we it has to make money that it that, that it has to do you know all kinds of things that are ridiculous because they're just going to try to make it hard. So what Trump has done is remove, actually remove equipment out of the post office. But what happened under the Obama administration was a different kind of kneecapping. What the Obama administration did to kneecap the postal service was that they, uh, Donahoe in, in his, 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 Journey or his intent to uh, to dig the Postal Service out of its quote giant financial hole um, uh, ignored the fact that the Postal Service's financial troubles in quotes I mean these are these are made up troubles uh, stem from a 2006 law that was put in place under. Uh, George W. Bush, requiring the Postal Service to pre-fund its retirement benefits for 75 years out. This is something that is imposed on no other public agency or private business that fund the retirement fund for the US Postal Service is currently has forty seven billion dollars in it. And if you don't think these motherfuckers wanna wanna get in there and get their little paws on that stuff, you get another thing coming. That is exactly what they wanna do. Uh, it, it's not just about machines It's not just about elections There is, you know, they want to make money Here and they want to just grab money If there's a pot of money anywhere These bastards are going to try To find a way to sink their little Teeth in uh, into it um, So there's $47 billion Sitting there, this is as of 2014, to pay out all Benefits for current workers Yet the law demands additional payments Of $5.5 billion a year And when the Postal Service misses these payments as they had since twenty eleven it creates massive losses on the balance sheet, which are really just losses on paper this isn't this isn't you know real money this is this is a, a, a an accounting issue if the requirement were suspended. Just suspend it. Just suspend the requirement for the fourth quarter of 2013. The Postal Service would have turned a $1 billion profit instead of losing $354 million. Now, here's here's Obama's guy. Rather than focusing on the retirement issues as the main source of the Postal Service immediate problems, Donahoe has stressed a long-term prescription of innovation and uh Remember that word, innovation, because this is, this is something that um, uh, Thomas Frank has talked about in his book, Listen Liberal. Anytime you've got the word innovation coming from, especially from uh, neoliberal Democrats, it, someone's getting ready to try and rob you, you know, or, or uh, you know, put you under their thumb. Innovation never works in the favor of, you know, us plebes on the ground. While reductions in mail in mail volume in a digital age certainly demands a response, they were worried about email and shit. Uh, Donahoe's innovation. Has involved closing post office branches, reducing hours, and cutting over 125,000 jobs, the sharpest drop in United States Postal Service history, with ne- nearly 100,000 more jobs slated to be cut by 2015. He also tried to end Saturday delivery. Y'all remember that? I remember it. Yeah, I remember everyone freaking out about it because. Saturday delivery is super important with the mail that allows you that day. If someone drops a check in the mail to you on like Thursday, that gives them, that gives you enough time to get that money and get it in the bank by the end of the weekend. You know, these are, by the way, when people actually have time off from work. So this, this was gobsmacking that somebody wanted to end Saturday delivery and under a democratic president. Um, so we, so this particular postmaster general tried to end Saturday delivery before Congress rejected that maneuver. He even partially privatized postal services through a partnership with Staples, Staples store. Remember this he used to be able to do, um, priority mail and get stamps and stuff at Staples, which is Staples even around anymore? I don't think it is. Um, and this angered postal workers um, in the union who said that non-union staple employees shouldn't be selling products like stamps and priority mail. The cynic, this is David Day in writing, the cynic would say that Donahoe's preference for job cutting and privatization over new revenue off Options like postal banking reflects poorly on President Barack Obama after all, Donahoe is his postmaster general um and so David Dayan says you know that's partially right, but it's also partially wrong so there's some there's some shading here, there's some nuance, and the nuance is um Though the Postmaster General was once a member of the presidential cabinet, the nation's first was Ben Franklin. Um, That changed in 1970 with a reorganization making the Postal Service a semi-autonomous agency. Instead, a board of governors composed of nine members appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate chooses the Postmaster General and chief deputy, who then become the other two members of the board. The postmaster serves at the pleasure of the board and could be replaced at any time. The board of governors operates like a board of directors of a private company, not only choosing the executive team, but also approving compensation packages, directing expenditures, conducting long-range planning, and the setting of policies on all postal matters, da-da-da-da-da, like this. So that's that's where... Thank you, listener. Staples is still around. It's not still around on Alfea, where I used to go to Staples um, to get whatever paper, whatever. Um, It's not there anymore. And uh, so the only thing we have over here is like an an office, depot, town, palace, whatever. Um, Not that I am doing any shopping these days, as a matter of fact, uh, everything I'm getting is uh, um, going through the freaking postal service. Jesus. Um, so here we go. Uh, here's where Obama deserves criticism. There are five vacancies on the nine member board. OK, so Obama was. Constantly criticized for having all of these uh, uh, vacancies, there was all these open seats all over government, you know, because of course Bush and Cheney did their level best to try and dismantle any kind of government that works, and one way that you do that is to make sure that nobody is there who can actually uh, um, do the work, you know, to to administer a, a a department. Uh, so there's five vacancies on the nine-member board. He did not successfully place a single appointee uh, on the board during his entire tenure in office. The four existing members were all appointed by George W. Bush. So at that time, the, the Postal Service Board the, of Governors consisted of a chairman who was a former Republican state senator from New Mexico and one-time aide to Senator Pat de' Medici. Um, Vice chair Jim's bill, Bill Bray an ex-democratic congressman from Nevada, Louis Giuliano, former CEO of ITT corporation and a senior advisor to the Carlisle group. You know who those guys are. That's Poppy Bush's, um, you know, Uh, Dirty Dirty business And Ellen Williams A lobbyist and former chairwoman Of the Republican Party of Kentucky So the decision making entity For the Postal Service remains In partisan Republican hands Five years into The Obama presidency It's not surprising then That they've used a relatively Artificial retirement funding crisis To shrink the agency And privatize services So, you know, just to give you a taste of some of the stuff that was going around with um, uh, the uh, ridiculous um, Jake Johnson stuff. Let me find this for you. Warren Gunnels did a really good job of setting these guys straight. I thought that I do 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 do, 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 do 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 Let's see. Let's start here. Here it is. Um, Jason Johnson says we know Trump is trying to destroy. The uh, United States Postal Service by having DeJoy remove sorting machines, cut back hours and increase the cost of stamps for mail and ballots. We also know DeJoy can be removed by the Board of Governors. How did we get here? You may not like that answer. United States Postal Service Board of Governors is supposed to have nine members, but they operated with an emergency committee and without a quorum for years because several Obama appointees for the committee were blocked. Who were they blocked by? Senator Bernie Sanders. And it goes on. Sanders was concerned that the USPS uh, Board of Governors would continue to slash services and hurt employees. <laughs> yeah. Um which was right uh, uh, so much so that by December 2016 2 years after this other article was written by David Dance there was only one board of governors member left Trump filled the positions in subsequent years. It was well-meaning policy on Sanders' part. The problem is 4 years later it's given Trump almost total control over oversight. Okay, so what happened here as Warren Gunnels was uh, you know, politely pointed out was that, you know, Obama failed to make uh, the uh, the appointments. There was one particular appointee that was just not going to work when, uh, when Bernie looked at the slate of postal nominees and it was, uh, and, and he put a hold on it. And the thing about a hold in the Senate is, you know, holds can, can be, you know, removed. That's not putting a hold on an appointee just means, Hey, we got to go talk about this and come back to the table. uh, uh One of the nominees, Bernie Blocked, said there is no good reason why the post service should remain part of the U.S. government and no good reason why it should enjoy a monopoly over the delivery of letter mail. So this guy just straight up wanted to privatize the mail service. And, you know, these these horrible people, you know. Daily Coes, Marcos, and Jason Johnson, you know, these these are people who are carrying water for Obama. They got out in front of this story Right before Obama started tweeting About it and so Obama Obama sticks his little toes in this and he's like You know oh this is terrible This is so awful what's going On with the postal service what with The with the uh privatization And the and the The slashing of jobs and You know raising the cost of You know like all that and He was completely Uh Guilty of that you know he had a problem with it too Um Obama had a supermajority, like let's don't forget this. He had the the House and the Senate when he was first elected, and he could have filled these vacancies and restored a Democratic majority. Um, uh, by law, he couldn't have more than five members on the board come from one party, but with five vacancies to work with, he could have established a majority, and he just didn't do it, just failed to freaking do it. Now, I think that the reason why— Here's here's my hypothesis. The reason why Jason Johnson and uh Daily Coast Marcos, you know, famous for what $20,000 worth of roses to uh Nancy Pelosi. She would have rather had ice cream by the way, but um or, you know, another $20,000 refrigerator. Uh but, you know, Marcos thought that that was super important that twenty thousand dollars be sent to Nancy Pelosi in the form of uh, cut flowers. Uh, I digress. And um, Obama didn't fill those vacancies. Like. Right? he is the one who weakened the postal service for whatever reason whether it was neglect or or you know he really wanted to have these services privatized that's you know that's not contained within the the pieces of uh reporting that i've reviewed coming up to this um Obama not only had the opportunity to remake the Board of Governors uh, early on, uh, he could have done it throughout his whole tenure. And, you know, he had eight years, he had eight years to work on this and he, and he never, he never did anything. Um, he could have remade the board with members uh, more favorable to a truly innovative agenda, truly innovative, not just innovation for innovation's sake, but Truly innovative, as in, uh, you know, keeping it a public service and making sure that everybody still has access to uh, postal service, Um, not the kind of innovation where you're privatizing things and trying to uh, make sure that someone is getting rich off of them. That's the other innovation that is uh, you got to work, you got to look out for. Um, The other thing that's important in, in here is... Right here. Just to wrap this up. In effect, you have a Republican majority controlling an executive agency under a Democratic president, which happens to be the country's second largest civilian employer behind Walmart. Like the postal service union is a big effing deal because it's a big effing union. It is, it, it employs a lot of people uh, and, and it's super important you know stuff that they do, the loss of over one hundred and twenty five thousand postal jobs under Obama had had a detrimental effect on employment and the resistance to ideas like postal banking prevents low wage communities from an alternative to payday lenders, check cashing stores, and other unscrupulous operators. Uh, Yet the White House has shown No urgency in reversing the Conservative governing ideology Of the Postal Service Uh, If if nothing else there's an economic Imperative for the White House to act They claim to want to reduce Inequality through executive action Postal banking would have been A major opportunity to do so So that's what Was going on during the Obama administration and All of that was just kind of left You know with Frayed edges and kind of falling apart in disrepair uh for you know this uh trump to come along and finish off the job, so you know all of that is just uh, it's um heartrending you know uh I think that that most people you know love the fact that you can stick 50 a 50 cent stamp on a on an envelope and it'll go anywhere in the United States and and get there you know that's pretty awesome and we and we rely on the post office for a lot of other stuff you know the uh that's the way you get your periodicals it's the way you get your medicines it's the way you know you uh, t- a lot of us get checks in the mail as i mentioned now All weekend long, people were up in arms saying we've got to do something about this. But, you know, Congress is on vacation until the middle of September. And, you know, they sure don't want to, you know, have to go back to work to see to any kind of – emergency but it looks like they're going to have to because uh the House Oversight Committee has called the Postmaster General to testify at an urgent hearing on sweeping operational and organizational changes so uh Today, yes, on Sunday, Representative Carolyn B. Maloney, Chairwoman of the Committee on Oversight and Reform, invited Postmaster General Louis DeJoy to testify at an urgent hearing on Monday, August 24, that's next week, on his sweeping operational and organizational changes at the post office. Um, So this is a a press release from the House Oversight Committee, and the bolded part says, over the past few, after the post several weeks, past several weeks, there have been startling new revelations about the scope and gravity of operational changes you are implementing at hundreds of postal facilities without consulting adequately with Congress, the Postal Regulatory Commission, or the Board of Governors, Chairman, uh, Chairwoman Maloney wrote continuing quote your testimony is particularly urgent given the troubling influx of reports of widespread delays at postal facilities across the country as well as president trump's explicit admission last week that he had been blocking critical coronavirus funding for the postal service in order to impair in order to impair mail-in voting efforts for the upcoming elections in november uh, got to testify in front of this committee that that actually should be yeah, you know, I would rather that be a subpoena rather than an invitation and uh, you know the reason why it is slated for a week from now is because uh, the Democratic National Convention happens this week. And even if they wanted to call everyone back to Congress, they wouldn't be able to do it effectively. So we'll see if that actually happens on on Monday. Uh, Trump wants to. You know, break everything that works. I mean, that's just that's just the way that's just the way it goes right now, um, You know, we got to get them out of there and we got to, you know, make sure that the next person who is in office is, uh, you know, we got to hold their feet to the fire and make sure that they don't do some of the same things that Obama did. I wanted to share that with you because I think it's important that we realize and that we understand and and that we appreciate that these privatization scams. And this hobbling of public service happens under both Democratic and Republican uh, regimes in Washington, okay? It's not, it's not like you can just vote for, for Democrats and be happy when they're elected and then, you know, do brunch for a few years and then get aggravated. When a Republican comes to power, you know, as, as if that's when things are going sideways, because that's not how it works. You've got to keep their feet to the fire every step of the way. And I got to tell you, it's people like Marcos at Daily Kos and people like Jake Johnson, Jason Johnson uh, at, at MSNBC and the entire MSNBC, you know, uh, universe right now. I think of them like the Marvel universe, you know, there's like, you know, like. Uh uh, uh, uh uh let's not go there um the uh, uh we gotta make sure that uh, it by the way they're they're hydra you know in in the marvel universe <laughs> at this point um, the these folks are playing for different Prizes than we are We want a government that works We want the people to have Justice we want the people to have Equality and So on and so forth with people uh, Elites that go on Shows on MSNBC Or you know who are Former CIA who uh, You know developed a website That would like scoop up all this Information about activists uh, They're Playing for a different Pot of prizes. Yeah, you know? they they're, they they want to use innovation as a way to enrich, you know, people that that, that they're close to. They want to uh, increase their um, access to people in power. They um they're they're the modern version of um, courtiers essentially. Yeah, you know? they're. Um, we're basically living in a in a feudal type of society, and that's that's the kind of thing that happens in a feudal type of society. You have people who, you have these sycophants that uh, just scrape and beg and bow before power, you know, hoping that mm, maybe some of that will come my way. Yeah. Um, okay, we're going to take another little break, and we'll be right back with the some more news. <laughs> Oh my God. Donald Trump said that he wants to pardon Edward Snowden or he's thinking about it. And uh, uh, people lost their goddamn minds yesterday. It was so much fun. You know, what's really fun is like looking at Twitter on a Friday night or Saturday night, like from between the hours of 10 o'clock. Eastern time and two o'clock In the morning Eastern time because That's when people are getting really They're all oiled up They're all loose and and You know just the, the craziest Shit flies and so uh, Donald Trump says He wants to uh, Consider Pardoning uh, Edward Snowden Which isn't even the correct Way to you know go about that It's not like he's been convicted of anything Um and all of shit liberty went, you know, on this, like, ah, Putin loving, Putin loving this, Putin loving that, and, you know, just that and the other, and it's like, you know, I don't know what happened to a certain segment of of the electorate or of the Democratic Party, like, like, how... The the pods actually got in there and removed parts of their brains, but there is seriously an issue with these people. I mean, do uh, you look at a whistleblower like Edward Snowden who let us know that there is mass surveillance sucking up all of our information all the time to not be the person who goes, holy shit, let's not do that, you know, you know thank you for letting me know so that now I can turn my phone off or leave it behind somewhere. You know, instead of, instead of that, instead of being like, thank you, they're, they're like, uh, oh, he's a traitor, blah, 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 you know, like what are, you know, we used to talk about internal and external control, you know, like, the difference between internal control and external control is that external control is like you're on restriction. That's like when you get grounded and you can't go anywhere and they're saying, you know, externally, we're not letting you go anywhere. Internal control is like the Catholic church where you grow up with all of this guilt and all of these neuroses around like uh anything you might want to do that is fun. And, uh, and so you don't do any of those things that you might want to do that are fun because internally you've got all this guilt and shame and, you know, weirdness like built up around it. And that same dynamic is what is going on in politics right now. It's like, you know, you know, they say it's a lot like high school, and uh, and I think that that's true, but it's um, it's not for the reasons that that people think. Here's what I want to say about Edward Snowden. Uh, exonerate him, pardon him, do whatever. But God damn it, get Julian Assange out of Belmarsh and get Chelsea Manning out of uh, you know w- whatever you know where where she's been at. That's ridiculous and. Um, you know, all of the whistleblowers need to be released now. Again, under the Obama administration, we uh, prosecuted the most people under the uh, Espionage Act of 1917 than than ever. You know, that is not that is not how a democratic administration should run itself and we should not cheer that on the only reason these people are cheering that on they have no grasp of what it means what 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 the word traitor even means you know it's a very specific definition uh, that, that, uh, that is in the constitution written into the constitution what being a traitor means and none of this rises to the level of being a traitor. This is called whistleblowing. Um but uh but yeah, you know, uh, I'd like to see Snowden released. I'd like to see Julian Assange and uh everyone else who is who has been wrongfully imprisoned for um the uh for doing the right thing, for having freaking morals and, and, you know, telling the world how it is. We absolutely need that right now, because I'll tell you what, Nathan J. Robinson wrote an article about that this week in uh, current affairs. And of course, go, go read it and subscribe to current affairs. It's a fantastic magazine publications online, uh, you know, bullshit. This is this is the crisis of reason. Bullshit is free. You yeah. know, any kind of bullshit that anybody wants to throw at you you can get that stuff for free baby you get that stuff for free pushed to you it comes to your email box it comes to you in text messages now you get it for free all of the the flack you know pr flack the shit that they want you to read that that is like advertising you can get that stuff for free but the stuff that would actually help you that you need to know about that's behind a paywall That is. The world that we live in right now, and the other half of that is that we live in a world that uh, there is no longer any kind of middle class uh, reporters or, or you know people in, in publishing, people doing news reporting. The middle class does not exist in journalism anymore. You've got a citizen journalists like myself, or Uh, you know, people making millions of dollars a year like Chris Hayes. There's no in between. So if you want information that isn't the bullshit, isn't the flack, isn't what people want to sell you, then you have to go looking for it. And you have to be, uh, you have to have friends. You have to be aware. So, you know, I'm glad you're here listening to me because um, I want to, I want to kind of help here Uh, real quick. Massachusetts, holy crap Massachusetts Democratic Party What the hell is wrong with you people? Oh my god Uh, It came out this week That the Massachusetts Democratic Party Headed by Veronica Martinez uh, Tried to uh, rat fuck a, A campaign Of Uh, Someone by the name of Alex Morse He's the Holyoke mayor He's a young guy He is running for He is running for in a primary He's challenging uh, The very powerful And influential House Ways and Means Chair Representative Richard Neal Um, Right so he's he's, uh, He's going after A congressional seat here Um Dude's going after a congressional seat. He's trying to unseat a, 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 a Ways and Means Committee, and Ways and Means is super important. I, almost every piece of legislation, I, I, the, everything goes through Ways and Means. Ways and Means ch- ha, has its fingerprints on everything that happens in terms of lawmaking in the United States That's how powerful that that position is And the Democratic Party Schemed with the College Democrats of Massachusetts To try and take down Alex Morse And they tried to take down using homophobic freaking smears This is who these people are, okay? You know, I want you guys to understand this because it's important, especially if you're a budding politico, especially if you're somebody who's just starting to understand what's going on here. Uh, there's a lot of people in this field who are you're going to work right next to. They're going to rub shoulders with them and they're not your friends. You know, you're going to work on campaigns with people who uh, are actively not in favor of the person Whose campaign they're working with It's common, it work, It happens all the time um, And it's not just in Massachusetts It's not just in New York It definitely happens in, in, in Florida So it's important to understand How these things go down um, This thing with Alex Morris Was just disgusting Because the allegations against him Were basically that he was a A gay guy you know that who had used um dating apps to date people in town you know like uh, uh and, and i'm talking like uh like match level stuff this isn't like you know like like hookups this was just dating you know just like chatting with people and the college democrats um Sent a letter to him, barring him from future events, alleging that he had made some students feel uncomfortable by abusing his power by making romantic advances and engaging in sexual contact you know just just you know the the you know, uh homophobic you know gay smear going back to you know however long ago this is old school stuff, but here's the thing. The college Democrats had help from Veronica Martinez, had help from the uh, from the state uh, Democratic Committee and from the uh, Democratic Party's, the state Democratic Party's executive director. Uh, So the executive director is Veronica Martinez and. When Morse, the Morse campaign turned to the party saying, hey, look, these people are coming after me and I don't think this is cool or whatever. And instead of helping them, they thought they, uh, and Morse thought that they, that, you know, this is a an out of whack attack. Uh, they were, the party was actively trying to destroy them at the time. Martinez, Veronica Martinez, reached out to the college Democrats members repeatedly by phone and text. Um, and took an active role in directing the college Democrats on the strategy behind this letter that I mentioned before and after its release. And she even coached the college Democrats on how to interact with the press. Now, it gets worse because the letter, uh, Veronica Martinez hooked the college Democrats up with a you know, just a real lawyer in, uh, in Massachusetts, whose name is Jam- Jim Roosevelt, the grandson of Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, he's a big power broker in the state and had donated to, uh, the incumbent meals campaigns in 2008 and 2016. Um, he has a history also of tangling with Bernie Sanders aligned wing of the party, which Alex Morris is definitely, you know, he's uh, um, endorsed by the Justice Dems and uh, the Sunrise Movement. And so he's definitely on the progressive side. So this is, this is the machine and the establishment doing what they do, you know, trying to take people down Uh Asked if anyone from the party leadership ever reached out to uh, Morse about his concerns being expressed by college Democrats, Morse said never. You know, well, it's because they were actively trying to take him down. Um, if Neil falls, by the way, the next person in the succession to have that powerful ways and means uh, position is Representative Lloyd Doggett of Texas who would be so much better in that position. So if Alex Morris were to win this primary, he would he would uh do a great service to the Ways and Means Committee, number one, and number two, he would also be a much more progressive uh member of Congress for for that district. So this is just some some in you know, just Grow Tuskery stuff that you need to know about uh ryan grimm has uh at the intercept has followed this story uh and has gotten very deep into it uh there's there's a lot more i encourage you to go in and, and check it out yourself uh because it's uh It's important. It's important that you know these sorts of things, and it's important that you protect yourself. If you're getting out there and starting to do work in this field, you need to you need to have a good sense of what is actually going on. All right, we're gonna be right back. Small (laughs) break. I promised, promised you guys send you a. So here we go. We got some UFO stuff. I'm I, I'm amazed that uh you know every time I tweet something about the UFO situation or something about UFOs, I get a lot of traction from my followers on Twitter. So thank you guys for indulging my um uh weird fascination with this stuff, but um this week, the Pentagon established a new task force to investigate UFOs. The Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Task Force, UAPTF, elevates research in east recent years um, by the Navy uh, to uh, look at high-performance craft, what they're calling high-performance per- craft. So you're probably familiar with uh, the fact that, uh, that the Navy has been... You know, talking about these Tic Tac videos and all this sort of thing for quite some time. Uh, little by little, the Navy specifically, but the military kind of in general, has been inching things out just a little bit. You know, like, oh, here's some videos that we have of some UFOs and they're kind of crazy. Maybe you should look at them. And then it's uh, uh, then they admit to having had... Uh, Programs to Study UAPs and then There's another little trickle where There's the uh, discussion of The Wilson documents that um, Talk about uh, Having materials Not of this earth You know and Harry Reid The former uh, Democratic Senate Majority leader from Nevada uh, Was big into All of this stuff he's he helped Fund uh, Robert Bigelow uh, Who was deepen with these, with these guys. So the story hits this week that the Pentagon's doing this uh, task force. Uh, Lou Elizondo, who's with the, to the stars Academy and is uh, on that television show um, unexplained, I think is what it's called. Uh, So the show is in its second season and what it basically does is uh, it, 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 okay this is this is me telling you what it does you know you can make your own make up your own mind but um it's it's pro-military propaganda 100 percent. like the the whole point of the show and the whole point of what's going on in there is to ramp up a lot of fear and anxiety about good god there could be aliens to come invade us um and let's do something about it, you know, and to demand the military to spend more money on military stuff or whatever and uh, and, and do something about this. This is not, this is never going to lead to progressive politics, okay? Um, listen, I, I, I love a good UFO story as much as the next person, but I think we need to be very skeptical about what's going on here because Tyler Rogueway, right before we came on, just published, just bam, right here in the in the war zone. Go to thedrive.com. Check out the war zone. Tyler Rogaway is such a great um, resource for all things going on in military contracting and you know follows this UFO stuff a little bit. Uh, and by the way, uh, accused Lou Elizondo the other day or yesterday accused Lou Elizondo of using like uh, a bunch of his material uh, plagiarizing his material for the unexplained show. I freaking love that because uh, you know, they would never, they would never bring rogue away on to, um, to the show. And he, he wouldn't uh, accept an invitation if it were extended, but so, Rogaway's piece here is super important. The Army has unveiled its plan for swarms of electronic warfare-enabled air-launched drones. Air-launched, okay? So the planes are going to be dropping these, uh, these drones, so they're going to be flying a little bit higher. The drones will be able to scout ahead, act as decoys, launch electronic warfare, and other strikes directly against threats that they find. And uh, in describing this, uh, Away says that uh, there's all kinds of types of drones that they're putting into this program. Uh, so there's scouts, electronic attackers, which, you know, will fly over a target and uh, knock out the electronics. There are decoys, of course, and even suicide drones. Uh, it, it, you know, decide for yourself what you think a suicide drone is. Um I think it's really interesting that uh, just a few days after the announcement of uh, the, the, this task force on UFO sightings, that it's announced we're going to start dropping all of these electronic warfare-enabled air-launched drones all over the place. So I cannot wait to see how that pans out. Oh, my God, we definitely live in a nightmare right now. I am so sorry, y'all. Okay, enough of that. The Postal Service took me a little bit longer to unravel than I thought it would. I apologize for that, but right now we have Matthew Schwartz with the uh, South Florida Wildlands in conversation with Rick Spizak, so please enjoy.
2: Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome Mr. Matthew Schwartz of South Florida Wildlands. Matthew, what's new and exciting with you, sir?
1: Uh, hey, Rick, how are you doing?
2: Good, sir, um, good. I hope you're enjoying
1: your summer. Uh, hot one.
2: Yeah, so, COVID, COVID uh, notwithstanding.
1: <laughs> COVID notwithstanding, right, and uh, election politics notwithstanding.
2: Uh, so, that's another story, uh, yeah.
1: That's another story. You know, fortunately, South Florida Wildlanders Association – fortunately or unfortunately, depending how you look at it. So we're a 501 C three nonprofit. And that means we're absolutely prohibited from getting involved in elections for or against. And that, uh, you know, it feels, sometimes it could feel a little bit restraining, but on the other hand, sometimes it's really liberating to know that no matter what, that's something we don't get involved with Right. is who's right. running and we can't, We can't, and we can't. So, um, that just leaves all the environmental stuff, uh, in front of us. And there's plenty there.
2: That's for sure. Um, Luckily, you can still, you can still address policy issues regardless of what party is promoting a particular onerous policy.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, unfortunately, bad environmental policy, whatever some people may think carries over through every administration. I think I had during the eight years that Obama was in office, probably four, uh, federal lawsuits over uh, excessive off-road vehicle use in the Big Cypress, over oil exploration in the Big Cypress. The Sable Trail Pipeline was the Obama administration's, and, of course, fracking, which really took off during his administration. So it's never, you know, we never go from darkness into light or light into darkness. It's always shades of gray, and no matter who's in office, and uh, there's always lots and lots of work for just straight, up environmental policy, like you said. It's policy, not politics.
2: Well, luckily, with the uh, current administration, Florida's government, we have seen just a remarkable greening of Florida policy, have we? Well,
1: <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about that. I mean, the biggest – so in terms of South Florida Wildlands, by far the biggest campaign we have going on right now is MCORs. And MCORs is those three new highways that they want to build. Let me see, uh, Multimodal Corridors of Regional Economic Significance. That's MCORs. Mm-hmm. And those were, those were established uh, a year ago, over a year ago, by the Florida legislature. Uh, every, it seemed like just about every newspaper in the state editorial board was begging DeSantis not to sign it. All the environmentalists, all the environmental organizations were begging him not to sign it. And he signed it. So we got the legislature, and by the way, that vote—we'll talk about that M in a minute—but that vote was practically unanimous, unanimous in the Florida Senate. One Florida Democrat voted against it. So to show you that bad environmental policy can also be highly nonpartisan, and that—that that was a case where it was just unbelievable. So these roads, 320 miles of new highway from Collier County, let's say from I-75. All the way up to the Florida Georgia border. And all through the western side of the state, where our Florida panthers live, where our black bears live, uh, various uh, salamanders, crested caracaras, eastern indigo snakes, gopher tortoises. I mean, the natural part of our state is going to get a brand new highway. It's the biggest project, uh, environmental project, or environmental disaster we've seen since the creation of the Florida Turnpike.
2: Isn't um, it that just what the development hungry Florida needs? More pavement.
1: Well, it, it it serves their purpose. I mean if you have a if you own a piece of land out in rural Florida and somebody says, Hey, you know what? The state is gonna go ahead and run bonds and raise lots of money and if we can't uh satisfy the bonds then we'll just take it out of the uh the out of the people of Florida. And we're going to build a brand new highway going right through your cattle pasture or right through right next to your tomato farms. And if you want to develop this land, look, you're going to have a great way for people to get there and get out of it um, free of charge. Uh, so when I when I'm when I'm spending my time fighting a project like that and making some headway, um, it tells me that Florida politics has a long way to go before it really greens up no matter what. The little things are, I mean, 320 miles. When you think about down here, let's say, let's picture something like the Florida Turnpike Extension that goes to Homestead. I've been down here since 95. Even that area, you could wa- You could just watch a highway extension develop. It's not just the highway. It's all the development that goes up alongside of it. Of
2: course. And
1: that's, that's what will happen here. So
2: well, I'm spending all in, the time on that. I lived in South Dade for the better part of uh, 35 years. Wow. And uh, it it just uh, blows my mind. I, I lived out at Chrome and Coconut Palm, and then lived south of Florida City, uh, pretty mm. much butt up to the park. And the amount of development that you see sprung up along that that Turnpike extension it's it's mind blowing. It, it always it puzzled me where the hell are those people working, since there's not really a lot of jobs down in the Greater Homestead area. So they're not they, working there. They're all there. commuting, and that they're, just they're adds, commuting burden burden yeah,
1: burden I, I mean when you get off when you're on the Turnpike heading south and get down to southwest 100 let's say 152nd street where Zoo Miami is right. um it lines up it can line up for miles for people to get off the uh the Turnpike exit there at south during during rush hour it's unbelievable and there is and so we go from the big highway to you were just saying I kind of cut you off I mean transportation and every city in Florida is unbelievable. Um, the congestion and the amount of time people spend in their vehicles uh, to get to and from work, it's, it's incredible. And yet, all we're doing is building new highways. Both in the in, intercity, let's say, MCORs is going from you know, Collier all the way up to the Florida-Georgia border. But even within Miami-Dade, the county government tries to, is trying to extend that eight thirty six. The one that goes uh, the Doral, uh, State Road 836, from out past the airport all the way out to the Everglades, um, running down along Chrome Avenue, essentially, to open up that area to new highways. And of course, that's just going to pour more people onto the existing 836. um, And no real commitment to what most cities in the world use to solve their uh, transit problems, which is Mass transit. Um quality mass transit. Doesn't exist here.
2: Well see you, you also pointed out something else that that's very important. There's mass transit and then there's quality mass transit. No one would ever accuse Florida Florida cities especially of developing quality mass transit. Uh evidently they regard both um solar power and trees as completely unnecessary. <laughs>
1: It's, you know, and that is a distinction. I mean, we do have mass transit. We do have one little train line that runs from Dade Land up to, I forget the neighborhood where it, it you know, terminates along somewhere in North uh, Miami-Dade. And it's one line. So if you you want to use it, if it's part of your transportation link-up, for most people, they have to take a bus to get to uh, Metro Rail. Then they take the train line, then they get off, and they need another bus to get to their final destination. They're taking two buses and a train line, and their commute could easily be two hours in each direction. If they miss a bus, if the buses aren't running, I mean, it's – it's. Uh, and we just keep packing more people in here. And, of course, not just it's not just the congestion on the highways. I mean, one of the big issues of uh, overcrowding is water use. I mean, we keep sucking water out of the Everglades, putting billions of dollars into the Everglades. But notice when we talk about Everglades restoration, and I've been on uh, email strings with the staff of the Southwater Water Water Management District a lot of late over their new reservoir and about the – there's a water reservation rule that was put in place in 2007 that was supposed to say no new water that was was actually required, no new water to be drawn – from the Biscayne Aquifer or the Everglades, Every, all the new water that comes out of the system has to come from alternative water supplies. And you think about all the development that's gone into South Florida from 2007 to 2020, and I don't think any of that is on an alternative water supply. All of that is sucking water directly out of our Biscayne Aquifer, uh, out of the Everglades. It leads to saltwater intrusion because there's less fresh water in the system. And, of course, it also destroys the Everglades by not having enough water available for the for the ecosystem. It creates huge amounts of wastewater, which we can't deal with here in Florida. Broward, it seems like Broward County, uh, Fort Lauderdale, almost every, I'm not sure how often they happen, but they seem to happen regularly, once a month, sometimes twice a month. Uh, sewage spills, they happen in Miami-Dade. Um, and we're not. We're not doing much to address uh, sustainability here in Florida. So I think we got a long way to go before we see Florida greening, unfortunately.
2: Well, I, I attended a um, conference of Florida state scientists who were supposed to be addressing uh, pollution in uh, Florida waters. And mm-hmm. they basically said um, they have a plan to study particulates. Uh, They hope to have that online in the next five or ten years. And then after that, then they're going to look into exactly what kind of particulates are in the water. And (laughs) the collective eye roll in the audience was, I mean, audible. It was uh, shocking. And, of course, there's more springs being sold off. Uh, Thank God the uh, water bottlers can profit from Florida's uh, reserves. But... um, you have other things you want to talk about. In fact, I think you have a fundraiser going on right now, don't you?
1: Yes. Well, I do have. Yeah, we do a. We're doing a midsummer fundraiser. Um, we set a very modest two thousand dollar goal for approximately at a thousand dollars. It's been running for a few days. So we're halfway there. That's on our Facebook page, uh, uh, facebook dot com forward slash uh, South Florida Wild, and we'd love to see another thousand dollars or possibly more come into that. Um, we're up to our next, fighting the MCORES project. Uh, we did just have, by the way, we just had a victory of sorts. Um, I should announce that. A company called Tocala, Tocala LLC of Mississippi, uh, had a 100,000-plus acre lease from Collier Resources to do seismic testing and if they found anything in there, oil drilling, in a big swath of land just north of the Big Cypress National Preserve and the Florida Panther National Wildlife Refuge. They were going to drill holes in the ground, uh, put pentalite explosives down into there, blow them up, and have geophones laid out to listen to the vibrations and pick, make a 3D uh, uh, kind of illustration of what's down there. Um, similar to what Burnett was doing in the Big Cypress, except Burnett was using these gigantic vibro-sized trucks, 60,000-pound um, behemoths, Uh, that were driving through the Big Cypress, shaking the ground and pulling out the vibrations this way, that way. This is the old-fashioned way, drill a hole in the ground, throw some dynamite in there, blow it up and um, pick up the vibrations and create your 3D picture and maybe figure out where oil deposits are. Uh, We sued them. We unfortunately had to settle that lawsuit because just money was running out and likelihood of prevailing in court with Florida laws, which really don't say you cannot drill uh, or do exploration in sensitive habitats. Uh, we settled for some extra wetland protection, setbacks from highways, and I was supposed to get a field visit with the company before they went out there. So I decided to check and see where they were at and why I haven't heard from them about their field visit. Um, and I went onto DEP's website, and lo and behold, the first thing I saw in their file was a withdrawal letter from Tokala. And so we're, we're pulling out. And I called them up and I said, how come? And they said, well, we just don't want to do it anymore. And we're moving on to other things. So that's 100,000 acres of uh, oil uh, development. That's not going to happen. And so that's a good thing. That's a, you know, that's a good thing. And uh, we announced that on our Facebook page and an email blast. Um, and just keep plugging away at the roads that uh, Burnett has still, you know, got their lease in the big Cyprus And then, of course, there's all kinds of development coming at the Florida Panther habitat. Um, The Fish and Wildlife Service is currently reviewing a habitat conservation plan for 45,000 acres of new development in Southwest Florida. No, So, for people who, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm Matt. Let me
2: ask you a question. I I thought that our friends at Florida Wildlife, uh, Florida FWC, have said that. All of that seismic testing in the glades won't have any impact whatsoever on the habitat of the panthers. Are you are you cons- consoled by that?
1: No, not at all, because we know it will. We know that those kinds of activities has great disturbance on wildlife. And when you drive these, I mean, those holes, let's say, well, Burnett is clearly, we've, we've gone out there and seen it, that degrading the wetlands of the Big Cypress, hundreds of miles of wetlands have been crushed under the weight of their machines. Uh in the case of Tokala, they were going to drive lighter trucks, but they had to, you know, bring drilling rigs out there to drill the holes to put the pedal line in there. And you're driving through wetlands, aside from the booms going off, I think it was like I forget exactly, I think it's eight thousand plus shot holes they were going to drill. Um, aside from the noise, the destruction of the habitat. But when you add that to new highways going in, and then forty five thousand acres of development forty five thousand acres is roughly the size of washington d c the entire city of washington d c They want to put forty five thousand acres of new development in Eastern Collier County, near the Big Cypress, near the Florida Panther National Wildlife Refuge, near all the public lands and what we what we say it's death by a thousand cuts it's not one project it's not any one project each project railroad not railroad, I mean highways, we're not building railroads anymore, highways, an airport, a university, uh, oil development, residential development, golf courses, the whole gamut of Florida development, each one just degrades the habitat that much more, uses that much more water, leaves that much less wetlands, that much less native vegetation and the animals, of course, they don't sue, they don't have lawyers, um, they depend on people like me and you know many other people like me to you know stand up for them and uh, we do what we can and and uh, it's uh, that's why we need money. I mean people who who care about wildlife. I mean I hate to say it, they should be giving money to an organization like South Florida Wildlands. We're out in the trenches. We're fighting these people. We don't back down. We don't compromise.
2: Matthew, we don't say, oh yeah,
1: go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry.
2: How can they donate? Where can they donate? How can the good people of Florida, who care about the environment, how can they put money into the good work that you're doing?
1: Well, okay. So, uh, Facebook is where we have probably our biggest reach these days. We have 100,000 plus followers now, which is kind of amazing to me. So, obviously, people like the page. Um, they go onto the page and scroll down. They'll see. Uh, they'll see the fundraiser. Um, it's like I said, facebook.com forward slash South Florida wild. They could also go directly to our website, which is South So South Florida wild written three words, written as one South Florida wild.org. And just click the donate button on the page and, um, give us some, give us some guilt to, to, help, to, to help out. Um, it, it, every dollar helps. We're not a huge organization at all where you we work on a very small budget. So anything that comes in, Gets used right here in South Florida to pay our expenses for the conservation work we do. Um, our website is nothing fancy. It's just very basic. Um, and that's, you know, another aspect of being a small organization, uh, not having time to, you know, create a fancy website. And, uh, and you know, honestly, fancy fundraisers and banquets and whatnot. Uh, we just do conservation work and hope that uh, folks will support us. But those are two ways that people can definitely uh, get, you know, find our donate page, either on Facebook, even if they go right to the Facebook page, there's a donate button right on the page they can hit, or they can go, like I said, to our website and click donate and, and send them, or they can send it, send a, uh, send checks. They can send checks to uh, South Florida Wildlands Association, and that's P.O. Box 30211, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 33303. And that will also get the job done.
2: Well, thank you, Matthew. Thank you so much for joining us and giving us some good news and the challenges uh, that Florida faces today. Thanks so much for the work that you do, Matthew. Thanks for having me on again, Rick. Take care. Bye-bye. You take care of yourself. Bye-bye.
0: And we're back with Janine Maloff, as her mic comes on. There she is. How you doing, Janine? I'm good, Brooke. How are you? I'm super. So what do you got for us tonight? Okay. Something about the uh, shadow docket with the, right. uh, Supreme the Supreme Court.
3: Right. The Supreme Court, otherwise known as the SCOTUS shadow docket. I'm just It's something that really shouldn't exist, and not many Americans know much about it, so I'm just going to get started. So this is the Supreme Court of the SCOTUS shadow docket and why it shouldn't exist. Now, the SCOTUS, or Supreme Court, has served as a mysterious symbol of justice in the U.S. Most of us understand that for a case to be considered by the Supreme Court, the case has to be vetted by lower courts and truly merit the consideration of being listened to by the Supreme Court by posing a question of important federal constitutional law. That's the bar right there lower judges, appeals judges, and finally the Supreme Court itself deliberates long and hard to first decide if the case has standing or uh, yeah, if they can issue what's called a writ of certiorari. According to the Legal Information Institute at the Cornell Law School, this writ of certiorari is, quote, a type of writ meant for rare use by which an appellate court decides to review a case at its discretion. The word certiorari comes from law, Latin, and means to, quote, be more fully informed. A writ of certiorari orders a lower court to deliver its record in a case so that a higher court may review it, end quote. Now, most of us accept that this long course of deliberations required before the Supreme Court will accept a case for review and then actually decide it. It's not only respected, but always followed. We were wrong. We're going to introduce now the shadow docket of the united states supreme court where lately very important decisions are made under cover of night with conservative jurists especially acting as sneak peeks for what i call the criminal administration of trump and no deliberations or explanation of decisions are required in fact many of these shadow docket cases receive less attention or deliberation than what you would see in the average traffic court and no i'm not kidding so in Vox, uh, Ian Milhiser, Milhiser wrote a, a piece on August 11th titled, The Supreme Court's Enigmatic Shadow Docket Explained, How the Supreme Court Hides Major Conservative Victories in Plain Sight. So just last week, the Supreme Court handed down a five-to-four decision. And this was the conservatives, you know, constituting the majority. And what they did is they blocked the lower court's order that would have required a California jail to take certain steps, such as socially distancing inmates and also providing inmates in this jail with hand sanitizer containing at least 60% alcohol. And this was ordered to prevent the spread of COVID within the jail, all right? Again, the SCOTUS blocked the lower court's order that would have required the sanitizer and the social distancing in this jail. Now, think about that. Consider the cold-blooded indifference in this decision, which the jurists of any bench, but especially the SCOTUS, frame in the context of judicial constraint. What good is the judiciary if it won't correct such obvious injustice? When should any sort of jail sentence in a prison be automatically converted into a death sentence, such as during the COVID pandemic, and on the pretext of judicial constraint? isn't that an excuse to maintain the already historic injustice of our ironically named justice system? So Millheiser goes through this and he says he doesn't really know why the Supreme court did this. But my question is why is the Supreme court even allowed to evade transparency regarding these decisions? So enter the notorious shadow docket. And this is an example of what happens when justices, when judges are excused from transparency in the shadow docket. This, decisions are made with lightning speed and practically zero deliberation and they're made secretly often with the Supreme Court this refusing to offer any explanation for that decision and one example of this and what I call the garbage docket is this case this prison case which was you know once again this is the case of Barnes v. Allman and that's the case I mentioned just a minute ago and so Lauren the court's order in the in the shadow docket, they they turned away the lower court's ordering and they only gave a single paragraph. The Supreme Court gave a single paragraph, and it was what they call boilerplate language according to Milhiser, And quote, just said, quote, that the district court's May 26, 2020, order granting a preliminary injunction, is stayed pending disposition of the appeal in the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit in disposition of a petition asking the justices to fully review this case. One single paragraph of legal jargon was sufficient to deny proper hygienic conditions in prisons to prevent COVID spread. One paragraph of legal jargon has condemned prisoners to a possible death sentence because the conservative majority on the Supreme Court couldn't bother to offer any more Just Because the conservative lackeys on the Supreme Court, especially Kavanaugh, we're doing Trump's bidding. That's what happened. And this decision is going to also affect prisoners everywhere. So how did the term shadow docket come to being? What, Why does it exist? Well, according to University of, law, uh, University of Chicago law professor, William Bowdy, he wrote a 2015 article that was considered very influential. And Bowdy wrote, quote, he refers to a range of orders and summary decisions that defy the Court's normal procedural regularity. End quote. So my question is this: Why does the Supreme Court feel the need to decide their own normal procedural regularity, as they did? And often these orders are handed down. Again, the court, the justices are not required to give any explanation for a decision made on the shadow docket. And you know, one of the excuses has been, well, these are just routine procedural decisions. I don't care. Even if the orders represent what they consider to be routine or procedural, why no explanation? The explanation should be mandatory. Explanations also should be mandatory and should not be merely for the attorney, but they're the public's right to transparency. A lot of these shadow docket um, decisions are handed down on Friday evenings. Sometimes they're handed down after midnight, even. Uh, and why do you do that? Why the secrecy? Well, Friday evenings, a lot of the Supreme Court, press court, they're already gone. So the secrecy of the shadow docket really serves the illegitimate Trump administration quite well. But again the question is, if the Supreme Court's to be respected, why the secrecy? What's the point? And again, shadow docket cases are often released. Some, there's no majority opinion frequently. The majority opinion, for those who don't know, when the Supreme Court decides something, if it's on their what they call their merit uh, docket, they have to provide a majority opinion, at least, explaining why they decided a case in a certain way. And often there's also a minority dissent. All right, does, the shadow docket doesn't require that. And you have to understand something. When something's decided by the Supreme Court, lower court judges are usually bound by the court's majority opinions. But a lower court justice is going to be hard pressed to follow an opinion that doesn't exist because the Supreme Court didn't offer it. But the shadow docket keeps happening and the decision in this Barnes case really does endanger the health and lives of thousands of inmates. Think about what it's doing. A lower court said, yes, California prison system, you have to provide sanitizer that, can, that is at least 60% alcohol, and you have to socially distance inmates because in, during this COVID pandemic that we know is deadly, and the SCOTUS said, no, we're just turning it away, we don't, they don't have to do that, and it didn't even warrant, it, it warranted barely a paragraph, and that just shows what the conservatives think of true justice. A prison sentence for any other thing should not, should not be a death sentence. And these shadow docket cases are also used to lock thousands of migrants out of the country. Uh, Often these decisions in the shadow docket are along the the party lines, all right? So to claim that judges aren't political, that's nonsense. And the Trump administration has had a particularly high rate of success with these shadow dockets, so it behooves them to push this. Uh, And... You know, basically, the Trump administration has asked on numerous occasions the Supreme Court to block lower court orders and done so more so than any other administration. And they do it on the shadow docket timeline because they don't want any evidence. And the court has really increased their shadow docket cases under Trump quite a bit. Now, there is one spark of hope Justice Sonia Sotomayor. She sounded the alarm about a year ago in this shadow docket. And she went out and really criticized her conservative colleagues that they were playing fast and loose with the the rules. She wrote several strongly worded dissents, you know, stating that her colleagues are disregarding safeguards that were really established to prevent the court from handing down basically decisions that weren't properly thought out, that were just cursory or surface level, or that were purely political to benefit a single politician such as Donald Trump. And Sonia Sotomayor recently um, sent out a stinging dissent in the Barnes case, and it was a forceful rebuke. Um, Her dissent, part of it read as the following, quote, the district court found that despite knowing the severe threat posed by COVID-19 and contrary to its own apparent policies, the jail exposed its inmates to significant risk from a highly contagious and potentially deadly disease. And yet the Supreme Court intervened leaving to its own devices a jail that has misrepresented its actions to the district court and failed to safeguard the health of the inmates in its care, end quote. Sotomayor is very right. Um, You know, the author of this article, Milheiser, says maybe the court had some sort of reason for this because these cases are decided very quickly as well. There's very little deliberation. Uh, And that's because they often, shadow docket cases, really do fly under the radar. And the translation, in my opinion, is zero accountability for the conservative justices of the Supreme Court because there's zero transparency. Keep in mind, the Supreme Court is a panel of judges and not high priests protecting some magical language. The Supreme Court, like the President and Congress, should never be allowed to escape accountability to the public. And yet they do. By shutting down any mechanisms needing needed to ensure transparency and they do so through the shadow docket The shadow docket isn't like their normal merit docket it's not like cases like roe v wade or brown versus the board of education it's nothing like that you have to understand something the supreme court routine is normally very slow all right normally in the typical year lawyers will file anywhere from seven to eight thousand petitions for a writ of certiorari, have the Supreme Court look at a case. And the court normally grants fewer than 80 out of 8,000 of these what they call cert petitions. That's the first step. Once they get a cert petition, step two is that the justices normally spend months looking at this case, thinking about it. Lawyers on both sides file very lengthy and voluminous briefs and collections of documents from the case's cumulative records. In most high-profile cases, <clears throat> you'll see you know, hordes of amicus briefs filed on either side, thousands of pages of legal arguments before even reaching a de- decision. And all this happens after the case has probably received a lot of attention from lower court justices. And the Supreme Court has a rule, they warn lawyers that unless the case they are presenting has, quote, an important question of federal law that really the court needs to look at that they won't grant the cert petition. Now, One exception might might be to resolve a disagreement if it's the disagreements between, say, two federal court of appeals or two state Supreme Courts or in a real emergency. But you have to remember something. Peter markulis who's law professor at Roger Williams University, told millheiser that usually Judicial experts, once you, quote, they want that kind of percolation effect. When there are more eyeballs on a legal question before it reaches, reaches the justices, the Supreme Court benefits from more viewpoints, and that, and that tends to lead to better decisions, end quote. And that's a very good reason why the court moves very slowly. But then we have this shadow do- docket, which I consider to be illegitimate. And the reality is, as I said in the beginning, these shadow docket cases receive limited to practically no briefings. They happen sometimes in the middle of the night, sometimes around midnight. There is no real deliberation. The court is not required to issue any sort of majority opinion explaining why they, do, why they made a certain decision. And often these shadow docket cases receive less attention than the two minutes that you might receive in traffic court. And that's not an exaggeration. This is not hyperbole. So this is something that is really just outrageous. Sometimes the Supreme Court will hand down majority opinions in the shadow docket. And there's a case that's really particularly vile, and it happened just this past year. And it's the Republican National Committee versus the Democratic National Committee. And this this case dealt, it was on the shadow docket. This is really outrageous. But it was, Governing the, governing the rights of voters who are afraid of contracting COVID-19 if they go to the polls, end quote. And that was the decision that made Wisconsin toss out a lot of ballots cast in their last April election. The case was decided in just two days, and that was after the GOP requested an emergency order. And you've got uh, a professor and associate dean at Penn State Law, Shoba Sivas Prasad-Wadia, quoted as saying, quote, it's hard to imagine that the justices have the same deliberation or time to think about the varying arguments by each party, end quote. And they still did this. So when the justices in the majority don't explain their reasoning, um, there's, sometimes they don't, and what they call that is they, they say that, quote, the opinion won't write, and it's a common phrase used in the judiciary. And you have to remember something regardless of whether a particular justice, whether it's a federal judge or a state judge or even a Supreme Court judge, when they say the opinion won't write, I don't care. The fact is this. There is normally an ordinary requirement that judges explain their decisions and they have to craft a reasoned opinion with proof to serve as a major check on judicial power and it keeps judges from ruling arbitrarily. And when they say an opinion won't write that's just an excuse all right uh even if it won't work out i I don't care this the shadow docket excuses them from having to give that having to fulfill that requirement of explaining their decision and professor margulies also said quote there are some opinions that just aren't going to work out Uh, once the justice has taken sufficient time to reason through how to decide a case but if the supreme court pushes too many of its decisions Onto its shadow docket, the justice and the majority may never figure out their first instinct regarding how to decide a case was followed, end quote. So we've had a lot of cases, you know, cases on the ordinary docket that, you know, really get a lot of deliberation, but the shadow docket, they don't receive any kind of attention like that. Uh, again, so Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote a dissenting opinion in Wolfie Cook County, and she criticized her colleagues saying that the conservatives on the court were too eager to reverse or stay lower court opinions. And a stay, for those who don't know, is when the court says, whatever the previous court said, you're going to get a reprieve, in other words. And so Sotomayor was quoted saying, quote, stay applications force the court to consider important statutory and constitutional questions that have not been ventilated fully in the lower courts on abbreviated timetables and without oral argument, end quote. And she went on, she said, a a Supreme Court order that blocks a lower court decision is usually considered an extraordinary event, all right, but it's become increasingly more common during uh, this Trump administration. And there are more shadow decisions under the Trump administration because, again, they don't want the light of day to let people know what's really going on. Um, The justices have handed down at least 10 emergency decisions by a 5-4 vote since the court's Term last October and that was under Trump. The court shadow docket decisions often have very severe consequences for very vulnerable com- uh, communities. All right, um, again, the court's decision borrowing for Sotomayor to lift public health restrictions on the jails that quote, reported, recently reported 15 new cases of COVID-19 a single week. End quote, that's pretty typical shadow docket decisions. And it's a shameful history, Um, and it's something that really needs to change. Uh, Once again, the Republican National Committee decision forced Wisconsin voters to make a very dangerous choice. Do they give up their right to vote because they are not going to be allowed to vote by mail? Or will they risk being infected with a deadly COVID-19 disease? Um, That's something that was actually decided in a shadow docket. It shouldn't have been, but it was. And this is something that keeps going on and on and on in its conservative majority. Um, once again, we had, there was an article by the American Bar Association Journal. There's another article in Slate by Steve Vladek, who is also a law professor, uh, and it was written last week. The Supreme Court's most partisan decisions are flying under the radar, quote, through its shadow docket, the court is quietly shaping the rules around elections, COVID re- regulations, immigration, and the federal death penalty, end quote. And, you know, once again, the shadow docket is something that is, it, it's, they're basically the Supreme Court conservatives acting as sneak thieves. And here's an example of some of the things that they decided on the shadow docket since the beginning of July 2020. It hasn't been that long. The has cleared the way, and I'm just reading straight from this, quote, they cleared the way for the first three federal executions in 17 years after lower courts have repeatedly halted them. They refused to disturb a Nevada COVID-related emergency order that treated churches more harshly than casinos. The has blocked a grassroots effort in Idaho to increase funding for K-12 education. The has allowed President Donald Trump to finish using military construction funds to complete his border wall, even though the lower court, um, even, even though every lower court considering that issue ruled that the repurposing of those funds is unlawful. The SCOTUS pushed back resolution of a dispute between the House of Representatives and the Justice Department over the Mueller report in a way that would pretty much um, you know, uh, ensure that VOJ, uh, Bill Barr, will win. The code has prevented potentially hundreds of thousands of eligible voters in Florida from voting in November because they refused to freeze Florida's pay-to-vote law and the pay-to-vote law, end quote. So the pay-to-vote law in Florida, if you're a felon and you basically, you're out, you served your time, you're out, if you don't stand in judge judgments before voting, any fees that you might owe, then you won't be allowed to vote. The lower courts struck it down as flagrantly unconstitutional. The SCOTUS just said, no nah, we're staying that. And so a lot of felons whose right to vote has basically been issued a poll tax unconstitutionally because of the shadow docket. The SCOTUS thought this is all this July. They froze a district court order that required an Orange County jail to take measures of its its own policies required to protect inmates from an outbreak of COVID-19. That's the Barnes decision. Once again, all of this happened on the shadow docket with basically no deliberation. And when they say it issued a stay or froze, this is where lower courts said, no, you can't do that. That's unconstitutional regarding a poll tax in Florida or uh, that's unconstitutional, you know, unlawful. That Trump's being allowed to take uh, military construction funds and send it to his border wall. Um, you know, it's uh, it's illegal to t- to basically basically issue almost a death sentence to inmates in California because the Orange County Jail has unsanitary conditions during this pandemic. All of that was stayed or frozen. In other words, so that. None of these entities had to do what lower courts said they had to do. They could get away with these injustices. And all of this was decided on the Supreme Court shadow docket. And that is outrageous. And so when you look at this, you just can't help but scream. Um, and you have to remember, too, the shadow docket is so sneaky that these decisions that, again, receive no deliberation. The Supreme Court justices in the majority, which are 90 to 100 percent of the time conservative, do are not required to issue any sort of opinion and explanation at all. The public never, almost never hears about this, or when they do hear about it, they think it's part of the normal docket, it isn't, it's the shadow docket. And these decisions that affect so many people are handed down all hours of the day, including several after midnight or on Friday afternoons, with little opportunity for any public involvement or scrutiny. That is something that needs to stop. So in conclusion, the suggestion that judges, for instance, are never political, especially the Supreme Court, is ludicrous on its own face value. Judges are political. Excuse me. If the realization of judicial politicization weren't an accepted and widespread philosophical reality, then conservatives wouldn't be selling their souls to ensure conservative jurists, again, especially on the Supreme Court, the claim of judicial restraint is also a non-starter. And that opinion traces back to the Supreme Court origins of Marbury v. Madison. The reasonable person understands that, yes, jurists or judges are political, but they must be true to the rule of law, which includes providing adequate levels of public transparency regarding their decisions and rationales for those same decisions. You can't, you can't challenge them if you don't know why they decided it. The fact is this. A shadow docket should never exist. That's it. There's nothing routine about anything the Supreme Court considers or decides. The shadow docket wasn't even publicly known until recently, and that was because Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor performed a public service when she not only issued multiple singling, singing dissents to these quickie decisions snuck in overnight, but she went to the media and she called out her conservative colleagues. That singular action on her part clearly demonstrated Sotomayor's solemn loyalty to democracy, justice, and fair play. That being said, it is equally condemnable that the conservative jurists of the Supreme Court remain silent. Their silence is their admission of collective guilt as they assist with what can only be called the criminal administration of Donald Trump. Supreme Court justices are not the high priests of the Holy Word, and hopefully scholars who are tasked with the idea of safeguarding an honest judicial system that demands, not ask, demands, equal justice before the law. But apparently the conservative jurists of the Supreme Court find such Equality, transparency, and accountability, an unwelcome nuisance. To remind the conservatives on the Supreme Court about their duty to the Constitution, recall what both parties from 110 and 112 years ago said on the subject of equal justice. The Democratic Party platform of 1908 under progressive activist William Jennings Bryan said the following, quote, the conscience of the nation is now aroused to free the government from the grip of those who made it a business asset of the favor-seeking corporations. It must become again a people's government and be administered in all its departments according to the Jeffersonian maxim, equal rights to all, special privileges to none. Shall the people rule? Is the overshadowing issue which manifests itself in all the questions now under discussion. The Progressive Party platform is written as the even more ironic of nineteen twelve for the GOP for the Republican candidate, Theodore Roosevelt also commented. We quote, we hold with Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln that the people are the masters of their constitution to fulfill its purposes and to safeguard it from those who by perversion of its intent would convert it into an instrument of injustice. In accordance with the needs of each generation, the people must use their sovereign powers to establish and maintain equal opportunity and industrial justice to secure which this government was founded and without which no republic can endure. This country belongs to the people who inhabit it. Its resources, its businesses, its business, its institutions, and its laws should be utilized, maintained, or altered in whatever whatever manner would best promote the general interest. It is time to set the public welfare in the first place. And that was the Progressive Party Platform of 1912 written by Theodore Roosevelt, a Republican. Finally, how the GOP regressed into its present conservative fascist state. Is another story. The GOP of Trump is centuries away from the former, formerly progressive GOP of Theodore Roosevelt. And the irony that this progressive quote came from Teddy Roosevelt, a Republican, is just too delicious to ignore. Just remember, uh, one thing I will tell the SCOTUS, or the conservative SCOTUS um, jurist like Kavanaugh and some of the others is, you know what, paybacks? You know what they say about that. They're a bee. And just remember that when served up, revenge is a dish best served cold. And that's my report. Ah,
0: Best served cold. Hell yeah.
3: (laughs) Yes. It was outrageous what I saw here. I mean, everybody thinks this happens out in the open, and it doesn't. And the idea that these decisions that are so important that are given basically less Attention, and the five minutes you would get in traffic court. Wow! I wish I were exaggerating, but I'm not.
0: And 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 none of us would have known it. Huh? No, it's so important that people understand this too, because it's it what. I love this story because it demystifies like what's going on in mm-hmm. the Supreme Court, because we have these assumptions that, oh, it's so important, and everything is given all of this attention because it's the Supreme Court, and, you know, this just uh, blows that wide open.
3: Yeah, yeah, it does, and it's, it, you know, this idea, we would have even known very little about it if Sonia Sotomayor had not gone, not just to the media. She went on talk shows. I mean, she outed her colleagues.
0: God bless her. That's fabulous. That's fabulous. Well, thank you so much, Janine. We look forward to you every week on Sunday. And also, I want to remind people, don't forget, on Thursday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, there's the Environmental Justice Report. So tune in for that. Thank you, Bill. As well. Thank you. We'll see you again next weekend on Thursday. Okay, bye-bye And so And I want to remind you guys too That I will be back in the middle of the week With Kardec uh, Kushner With the COVID report Where we will be bringing you more Of what's been going on And what is going on In uh, all things pandemic I also want to I guess some breaking news for you uh, Nancy Pelosi has called The uh, um, Congress or the House Back for uh that hearing on the post office, so things are happening all the time. uh get on Twitter, find out more about this uh postal service thing it's it's really ugly, and uh, as always, thank you so much for listening. you know we uh um, we appreciate you. And, uh, and, and I got to say, special shout out to Matthew Schwartz. That was a fabulous interview with Rick Spizak. So great show, everyone. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next week.